Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. I don't know what Twilight Zone we're all living in these days, but the NHL is being upheld as one of the most competent professional sports leagues in the world, and Gary Bettman is being compared to other commissioners and having fans saying, boy, I wish he was our commissioner. Can you explain to me, is, it, is this all related again to the Cubs winning the World Series when that timeline got fractured? I mean, what, what is happening here? Yeah, no, I do believe it began there um, in that very moment in Wrigley Field. Um, I, I, I have a couple theories to this. One, the last visible commissioner we had was Roger Goodell in his basement looking like a goober getting uh, <laughs> jeered by fans that who knows who was paying them. So we can juxtapose that with what we've been seeing with Gary Bettman. We also have Rob Manfred, who's clearly incompetent at his job. And Adam Silver has been kind of laying low through this, saying the right things as he usually does. But this is really Gary Bettman's time to shine. So kudos to him for taking 2020 and running with it. It's crazy. Like, I mean, look, man, like to the casual sports fan who's not exactly a, a puckhead, uh, Gary Bettman's the guy who cancels seasons, not brings them back. And so for him to be held up as the paragon of, of virtue when it comes to sports returning, not only in having the NHL's act together, but also in these uh, documents we're going to talk about in a second and how well thought out and insightful they are as far as what the protocols are going to be on return to play. I mean, as long as the um, NHL players don't have dinners that look like they're from Fire Festival, I think Gary Bettman is clearly trending up stock-wise right now amongst professional sports commissioners. Man, that is a big if you just put out there. <laughs> cannot wait to see these photos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up on ESPN on Ice today, Billy Guerin, GM. Do I have to just call him Bill now? Is he just Bill because he's like a general manager, no longer Billy? Is that what happens? We're going to have to ask him that. We're going to yeah, have to ask. That's the first question to, to, to Bill, to Mr. Guerin of the Minnesota Wild. Yes. To join us to talk about uh, the playoffs and return to play and all that stuff, as well as Rick Westhead of TSN, who's going to talk us through some very complicated and dicey issues facing the world of hockey, from hazing uh, through the, uh, the the racial injustice stuff that we've all uh, seen in the last few months. All that and more on this edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And so a lot's gone on uh, since the last episode. One, uh, Linda Cohen became me again. Uh, I took a little break and Linda did an awesome job, obviously. Uh, with you and now you are pod. Linda and now I am Linda yes um and so, so the NHL put out these massive documents again on like July 4th weekend remember when they dropped something on Memorial Day uh and now we've got these things like leaking on July 4th weekend absolutely no respect for American holidays this would have never happened on Canada Day let's just be honest sorry sorry it's really funny. I knew July 1st. I was like, I can plan all of my appointments that day. Nothing is going down. <laughs> exactly. So phase, phase three and phase four, the protocols for return to play uh, were released uh, leaky-wise over the weekend, formally earlier this week. And they're extensive, man. Everything you wanted to know about who's getting tested, how often, uh, what happens mm -hmm. if somebody tests positive and they're symptomatic, what happens if they test positive and they're asymptomatic. All that stuff. You've you've been on point as far as what the testing could look like 
when we get back into this these next couple phases of return to play. What were your thoughts when you saw the documents and what they ended up with? You know, one thing I will say is Gary Bettman was so adamant that by the time we return to play, public health officials have assured him there will be adequate testing, so the amount they need will be relatively insignificant. And it is, I just need to point out, we're at the point where we're getting to the point where they need to use thousands and thousands of tests, which is going to cost them millions of dollars. And hey, here in the U.S. especially, there's still a shortage. Um, so that is something that I definitely think could play poorly for the NHL. That said, we are going to Canada. It is much in a better place of flattening the curve than here in the U.S. So that is the right call and one of the reasons Gary Bettman's getting praised. I thought the minutia in the, in the document was fascinating. The fact that players all have their own hotel rooms. Housekeeping mm-hmm. only comes every third day. Everything from the exact food options that players can have. They can get delivery from outside the bubble oh, yeah. as long as there's a secure drop-off and there's going to be protocols for that. But you pointed out all we've been talking through all of this is this is going to be the death of the buffet. And lo and behold, in this document, there are <laughs> protocols for a buffet. A buffet. Yeah. Now, it sounds like it's going to be more of a cafeteria type thing where there are going to be some mm. servers there and they're behind plexiglass. But yeah, man, like everybody's been talking about it. who's going to dare, who will dare go to a buffet anymore during COVID-19. But lo and behold, uh, conference rooms will be designated in the hotels for the buffets. One of the things about the hotels uh, that I found fascinating was the fact that the spas will not be open, so mm-hmm. very unfortunate for, for everybody that loves a good hotel spa like, like yours truly. And, uh, and then, but the pool will be open. So I'm just imagining, you know, European dudes walking around in Speedos, chicken fights between two different teams, volleyball like in Top Gun. Man, the, the pool will be the place. To, they've got nothing else to do. What are they going to do? Go in their room and watch the Harley Quinn movie for the fourth time? No, they're going to go to the pool. Alone because players can't. Players can't go to each right. other's rooms. They can't go to each other's rooms. So you can't even get like N64 Mario Kart parties like the Capitals and Golden Knights had a couple of years ago. So I think that I think that Edmonton and Toronto, assuming they're the hubs because they haven't announced them yet, assuming Edmonton Edmonton Toronto are the hubs, uh, I think you're going to see like Toronto become Tortuga, Edmonton's going to become Antigua. <laughs> it is just going to be a giant tiki party at all times because these guys have nothing else to do, and it'll be beautiful despite the fact that it's, it's kind of f- cold in Canada. Let's be honest. Yes, but of course, should I read everybody the pool uh, protocols? Oh, yes. The hotel pool, if open, is permitted for use by all individuals in the Secure Zone Hotel, so long as individuals can socially distance both in and out of the pool. So I don't know about those noodle fights, as long as those noodles are six feet. Exactly. Individuals must... Yeah? Oh, I I just was going to tell everyone that the pool chairs must be disinfected before any chapter use, and the pool may be subject to capacity limits at any given time, so... Three-on-three volleyball tournaments, Greg. Maybe not uh, full-team squads. And Um, everybody, make sure you disinfect your noodle. That's the real key. Yeah. Of course. Uh, Always. But, you know, there will have to be some kind of entertainment because as we've, you know, learned in this document and what was rumored for many weeks, families cannot come to the hub cities and be with players until at least the conference finals. That's nearly five weeks guys will be alone without their wives, without their kids, without their girlfriends. And, you know, they are planning some, you know... I've heard everything from food trucks to outdoor movie nights. There's these rumors of excursions once it's safe to do so, secure golf outings. Um, But this really is a situation where guys are going rink hotel, rink hotel, maybe mini pool party, but probably not as exciting as Greg just detailed. Speedos. 
and 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 literal fights over the jacuzzi because there's no spot. Yeah. Uh, the excursions part I love. Um, everybody piling into a bus for a class trip to a golf course. I'm hoping maybe like a brewery tour. Um, I'm hoping for Dougie <laughs> Hamilton's sake at least one trip to the Royal Ontario Museum uh, in Toronto at some point. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be wacky to see how this whole thing plays out. It's gonna be like the Olympic Village except uh, boringer. Probably will be the way that it works out. Now. The documents have a lot of frivolity in them. And, and trust me when I tell you that, you know, some of the stuff in there is, is pretty frivolous and fun. It also has some serious stuff in there. Like, for example, mm-hmm. how serious the NHL is in trying to keep this bubble as tight as possible. And, you know, I've mentioned on the show before, like, I've talked to a few epidemiologists. They all say the same thing. If you test every day and if you can keep the bubble tight, a.k.a. you're not interacting with the general public, even in a place like Alberta where there isn't a very high infection rate, although there was some troubling news about one of the hospitals there uh, as we do the show today, um, you can pull this off maybe. But you got to be serious about following the protocols. You have to be diligent about the testing, and you got to keep the bubble secure. So in reading this document and seeing that if you take an unauthorized trip out of the bubble, let's go say you're going to hit the club with a couple of your boys and then come (laughs) back into the bubble, that's trouble. That's bubble trouble. And you are not going to be maybe allowed to continue on in the bubble and in the tournament. And in fact, the cool thing that, that the NHL and the PA have decided to do, we haven't mentioned the PA enough right now. I think the players clearly um, had a huge influence in making this whole thing happen. It's not just Gary Bettman as a one-man yes. show. Um, the NHL's basically said, look, teams, we, we can't be the chaperones here. You are the chaperones. You are going to get fined. You could lose a draft pick if you allow mm-hmm. your players to go slink out into the middle of the night into some uh, COVID-19 uh, hornet's nest and then try to come back in and, and infect all the players in our sweet little bubble. So that's how serious they're taking it. And then the other thing, Emily, that I found fascinating is the last part of the Phase 4 document, which is, to, for lack of a better term, the doomsday scenario. It spells mm. out one, the question I've been getting over and over again from people is what happens? What what is the, what is the threshold? What is the number of an, of positive tests that would make the NHL or its players say enough? We can't do this. Let's wait until next season. And the answer is there isn't one. There's no established number in that document. There may not be even an established number in their heads. I think it's going to be like art. You know it when you see it for both of those sides. But the end of this document clearly states that either the NHL or the NHLPA can throw in the towel and say, we can't go on. And then the NHL, in particular Gary Bettman, will rule on whether or not that is the case. Talk to the doctors, talk to the scientists. If they're all like, can't do it anymore, probably going to shut things down. Or Gary Bettman could be like, you know what? The scientists said it's okay, so we're going to continue to play. (laughs) And if that's the case, then the NHLPA can say, I don't think that's right. And then it gets taken to a neutral arbitrator. You want to think about the fights these two sides have had over, like, lengthy suspensions when it comes mm-hmm. to a neutral arbitrator? Wait until the entirety of the 2019-20 season is in the hands of the, quote, not hockey person to try to decide on what to do. I don't think it's going to come to that. I imagine the working relationship between the two sides would mean they'll come to some agreement on what what should happen if the infection rates get out of hand. But that's the mechanism, if you're curious about it, is that they would would figure it out. Batman makes a ruling. If they don't like the ruling, the players can take it to an arbitrator. 
You mentioned the potential penalties for teams if they do not comply with these rules. And when you look at the traveling party, it was initially supposed to be 50 people per team. They expanded to 52. It's very specific about who exactly those 52 roles will be. And it is very clear to me that the most important person is the one representative from each team, which will serve as the club compliance officer. And they are essentially in charge of making sure everyone from the star players to the coaches to the GM to especially the Black Aces, because I think those are the people everyone's most worried about. Uh, those, you know, minor leaguers who are like, hey, welcome to the NHL, kid. Go have fun and not play at all. Um, comply with the rules. And one other thing from the document that I found fascinating, we've been talking so much about who's going to opt out. And, you know, I think we'll talk about it later in the show. But there is a chance that people won't have the choice and the NHL will make the choice for them. And this specifically affects players like Max Domi or Capo Caco, both who are both type 1 diabetic and have celiac disease, and there's going to be a medical evaluation, and there's going to be a doctor who might deem them as unfit to play. And there is a recourse possibility, and I'm sure this could all go to neutral arbitration yet again, because that's what the <laughs> NHL loves more than anything else, the words neutral arbitration. Uh, but it is fascinating that even though from everything I've heard these guys want to play, someone could make that decision for them, that if they contract the disease while playing in an NHL environment, it's too much of a risk to their health, and the NHL doesn't want to stomach that risk, and therefore will sideline them themselves. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. If you haven't read the documents, I think they're out there somewhere. I think the, the NHL released them for the public uh, to see. After not... Greg did such a diligent job two days oh, earlier, digging, texting digging, all digging. the sources to get it for us. Insider that I am. Um, actually, I just dove into uh, Gary Bettman's trash can and found a copy of it. It's how we work. It's so I'll weird stop. that he has PDFs in his trash can. Well yeah, done. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Well, you know, ex-bloggers, we, we get the job done. Um, yeah, it's out there. It's a fascinating document. It's an impressive document. I give full kudos to, to, to the NHL, to the NHLPA, to Steve Mayer in particular, who's been the point person for all this stuff on return to play, be it, be it the security, the restaurants, the whole thing, um, and trying to secure that. And, and again, we don't even know all the details yet. When they get inside the bubble, we have to find out if they're going to be eating at an Applebee's or eating at the, you know, some, some Michelin starred place in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, it'll be fun to see, but also scary. And uh, I just hope it all works out because th there is a path to, to doing this. And I completely understand the people who are like, hey, this is a lot of talk about how they're going to do it and not a lot of talk about should they do it. I think that's a very worthy conversation to have. But by the end of Friday, when the NHLPA finishes their vote on return to play in the next CBA, which we'll talk about later in the show, should they do it kind of gets taken off the table a little bit because they're going to do it, right? So mm -hmm. we, we can all look back on it and see how it all went and, and criticize the process as it goes. But like horses left the barn. It may be running right. through the hospital to quote John Mulaney, but the horses left the barn. The last thing I'll say on this is we're going to Canada. You got to say process. <laughs> the process. We'll never say process. <laughs> all right. Let's get to our first guest. And now joining us is the GM of the Minnesota Wild, Bill Guerin. And Bill, this is a really silly first question, but we were talking, talking about it at the top of the show. <laughs> now that you're a GM, can you not go by Billy anymore? Like, are you William? Are you Mr. Bill Guerin? No, 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 what are you no, called no. in the office? I, I encourage people to call me Billy. It's, you know, my, I guess my dad went by Bill, and I, I just seems so formal. So I, I, I still prefer billy and it, yeah. i know it's it's like i'm a little kid but that's just what i just you know my my friends just call me billy yeah yeah 
We just didn't know <laughs> yeah, if it was. So a, uh, we didn't know if it was a, a, a Danny Daniel uh, Daniel Briere thing. You know, he 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 did the formal Daniel at one point, I believe. You know, when he got more popular. So we didn't know. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm, and I, you know what? I guess if people are, people are just meeting me for the first time, or you know, I didn't like. I don't know. Like in more formal situations or business, I'll introduce myself as Bill. But as people get to know me, it just switches over to Billy. All right. Well, listen, Willie. Um, we wanted to talk to you. <laughs> we wanted not, to talk to you. Not Willie. <laughs> <laughs> We wanted to talk to you uh, specifically at this point because uh, although things are kind of up in the air, we were curious about what life for you is like right now. I mean, we sort of have a path forward with these phase three and phase four documents. Um, you know, we kind of understand what's going to be happening in theory in the next few weeks. What's life like uh, like for you right now as a general manager with a team that's going to be in the postseason? Well, uh, like right now, I mean, we're probably like everybody else, just going through uh, – you know, all these different protocols and trying to get our list straight and um, making sure that things are running properly at our, our practice rank in phase two, getting ready for phase three. And, and um, like, there's, there's just more uh, logistical uh, stuff going on right now than, than normal. And it's just, it's a, it's a different world, something we're not, you know, entirely used to. Um, so we're just kind of figuring out as, as we get the information and making sure we're ready. You mentioned the logistics of coming up with the list. The NHL is very clear about who these 52 people must be in your traveling party. How hard was that to pare down? And is there someone you guys are leaving at home that you're like, you know what, it would be really beneficial to have that guy with us or gal? Well, there's, you know what, there's so many people that, that we travel with during the year that are that are important to what goes on and, and have a big impact that we can't bring. So um, it's just, it's not just one or two. It, it, it's a lot of people and um, you, you know, a lot of good people and it, it, it stinks to have to leave them behind, but you know, we, we only have so many slots and there are absolutely people that we, we can't, can't do without. Um, but that's just kind of what we're, uh, what we're dealing with. And, and, you know, I think everybody understands that. Hmm. All right, let me talk about one of these things that's been one of the bigger stories about the Wild, which is the the Kirill Kaprizov thing, um, where you have this incredible super rookie prospect, and everybody's like, wouldn't it be awesome to watch this guy rush in, play with the Wild in the playoffs? Now you got an offensive stud you didn't have before. Wouldn't that be cool? And the NHL's like, you know what would not be cool? That. And they won't let you do it. (laughs) So what? Tell me, you had to be. I'm guessing you you were probably fighting for him to be part of the team. What is the logic in not letting him be a part of the Wild for this postseason? Uh, you know what? I I mean, I stated my case. Um, you know, it, it's just there. There are things going on at the league, and negotiations going on at the league, and and decisions are made there that that they make them for a reason. And you know what, uh, you know, when, when they make them, you, you, you don't have to like it. Um, but you know what, you have to just, you know, support it and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it. And, you know, eventually we'll get Kirill signed and, uh, he'll be a member of our team. It's just a matter of when, and, um, we've been, we've had a great dialogue with, with his, with his agent, with him. Um, things are very positive right now and it's just, 
you know, it's disappointing that, that we won't have him uh, available to us. But I think in the, in the, the bigger picture, we'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get him signed and uh, he'll be part of our team. And, and you know, we'll be, uh, we'll be really happy about that. Now, I had a chance to meet Kirill this year in Moscow at the KHL All-Star Game, and what an infectious personality that kid has. He's just always smiling, and you can tell he really wants to prove himself here. I'm curious, you know, what was the conversation like with him when he found out that he was not going to be able to join the team this year? Because I know it was a goal. And how is that going to affect, you know, you said you're confident you're going to get him signed. Are, is there a possibility that he could stay over there in Russia, and especially because of the uncertainty with the NHL season next year and play in the KHL again next year? Yeah, I mean, there's a possibility of that. I, I don't know if that will happen. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to sit here and give you false information and say that that's going to happen or that definitely won't happen. So, there, I mean, there's a possibility for everything. So, um, I, I don't want to kind of tie myself to one answer. <laughs> Um, but no, and you're right. His personality is, is, is great. I went over to Moscow and had uh, dinner with him and, and watched him play and got to know him a little bit. And he's a great kid. And I, I know he's excited about coming to Minnesota and, um, it's, it's, you know, it's exciting for our fans to have, to, to have this kid kind of in the wings and waiting. And I know they're, they're starving to get this kid in our lineup as we all are. And, uh, like I said, our, our day will come with him when we, we get to, uh, you know, introduce him to the NHL. So um, what were your thoughts when you were watching the draft lottery uh, <laughs> and how that whole thing played <laughs> out? And does it change your mindset? Yeah, you can be, be honest with us. Does it change your mindset at all that you go into this tournament as a, as a lower seat? You obviously want to win the cup. Everybody wants to win the cup. But does it change your mindset at all? that if things don't work out in the qualification round, at least you got that in your back pocket. Well, yeah, I mean, hey, look, if, if it doesn't work out for us, then, you know, we're in the same boat as, uh, you know, some other teams. But our goal is to go there and, and, and win. And that's, that's our job. It's not to, uh, you know, try for a higher job. No, we, we don't do that. And if you try to do that, you lose credibility. Um our our job and my job is to produce a winner here, and um, and the players say once that puck's they don't care about a draft pick, they don't care who picks first, second, or third. They they we want to win, and and that's the way we approach it. If you think guys are, that are suiting up for for our games with the Minnesota Wild care where 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 people are drafting and where they're not, uh, no, they don't care at all. They all they care about is winning the game that they're getting ready for. And that's the way it should be. Now there were a couple of minutes in. I'm going to call you Billy. Billy, I'm curious <laughs> about training camp. Um, you know, one of the things the NHL decided with these protocols, should they pass, is that it's not going to be a bubble environment. And we've seen in phase two when guys are able to live at home but also go to the grocery store or go out, that because this virus is living amongst us, there is a possibility for transmission. What are you saying to your guys when they arrive for training camp on Monday? Is it please, please, please don't go out of your home? Is there rules that you guys are instituting? How are you going to handle that situation? Well, you know what? I mean, we're, we're, we're encouraging guys to, to be responsible. And, and you know what? They're, they're, they're grown men. They know what's going on. They're smart. Um, they know how serious this is. We just, we, we don't want them to put them, we don't want them to put themselves in, 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 you know, situations where they could, 
contract uh, contract something easier than another. You know, so just stay at home as much as you can. Um, you know, activities outside. Try to stay out of the bars. You know, things like that. Just just be smart and responsible. And we we want this to be successful. We want you know not just for us but for the league. We want this to get off the ground. So. I think we all have a uh, a big responsibility for that. All right. Finally. We've all now. Oh, go oh. ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask you. I'm curious. We've all read these documents now, especially phase four in the bubble. You've gone through it. Is there something that struck you as like, wow, how is that going to work? Or I can't believe they put that language in there. Like either a minor detail, maybe something about the pools or the hotel rooms. Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> this is it's just been, I, hey. I mean, it's just not been a, the craziest of years. And um, if you if you would have told me that this was going to happen when I got the job, you, I would have I would have said you're nuts. So um, just going through it, I mean, it, it's definitely different. But you know what? It's 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 a means to getting back to playing hockey and and living our life in, in the NHL. And I'm just thrilled about it. We'll do whatever. We'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. There you go. All right. Last one. It's 25th anniversary of the New Jersey Devils Stanley Cup in 1995. It's a long time. Yeah. Uh, I was there in game at Game Four as a fan. It was just awesome. Um, but I was looking back through some old pictures. I was looking back through some old articles. I was wondering, man, did any of that stuff that was swirling around the team, the Nashville relocation stuff, which was going on? With, for those who don't know, the, there was all these rumors about the Devils, oh, yeah. potentially like leaving for Nashville, and you know the governor was getting all this criticism. The, the team was allegedly taking trips to Nashville to scope out the arena, the whole thing. Did that stuff permeate into the room at all for you guys, or or was it just eyes on the prize the entire time? Yeah, no, I mean we we heard about it. It, it made its way into the room. I mean. When, when we were playing, it was, you know, we were all focused, but we, you know, there were articles in the paper. There were, there were all sorts of rumors and things like that. And we were like, holy cow, if we win this year and then they move us to Nashville, what's, what's, what's that going to say? Um, but I, I, you know, thank, you know, thankfully it worked out and they were able to keep the team there. And, um, you know, it, it's been such a successful franchise and, um, no, it was awesome. But, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we stayed in Jersey, right where we should have been, and uh, that was an awesome team. Did you ever, you ever think back on how the hell you swept Detroit that year? Because that Detroit team, pretty good team. No, they were <laughs> they were pretty good. They were pretty good. I guess we were too. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen some of the games on like the replays, and and then I saw that movie, the uh, the Russian Five, on which was spectacular, and. To, I don't know, just to know what was going on with their team on the other side was real interesting. And, and we just, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a hell of a series for us. There you go. All right, Bill, Billy, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you so, thank you yeah, so much for the time. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Moving on. The collective bargaining agreement is also being voted on this week by the NHL players association, the NHLPA, announced via a, the, they put out a graphic that I think is the kind of graphic that you would use to advertise an American gastropub, um, but they instead put a lot of information in it about how the executive board passed the CBA uh, onto the players for a full-body vote. Um, from what we know about it, uh, salary cap 81.5 could be flat for two years, potentially, depending on what revenues look like. Escrow, they're going to take a huge hit early on, but then it kind of levels out and will be capped uh, throughout the whole thing, which is something the players wanted. Um, and then you wrote about the Olympics and how we are going back for two 
Olympics is, is if the IOC decides to give the NHL what it's looking for. Again, as big of an if as NHL players will not get fire festival level lunches sent to their <laughs> hotel rooms. Um, but yeah, honestly, that is the biggest shock for me because as I wrote in our weekly roundup, I've sat in on pretty much every, and I believe you have too, press scrum with Bill Daly or or Gary Bettman over the last three years, all-star games, GM meetings, Stanley Cup finals. Every time they're asked about the Olympics, they have been adamant. We don't get marketing out of it. We, it does not behoove us to uh, pause our season for it and risk players getting injured. The insurance costs are too high. And for them to flip the script right now in the middle of a global pandemic and go to China um, is, is quite stunning to me. And really, it just speaks to the fact that players did have some leverage here. And they said, look, um, you know, we have two issues that upset us the most. One is escrow, one of the Olympics. You can't restructure the entire way that the NHL financial system works. We can't get rid of escrow, but they did throw in the Olympics as a sweetener. And in my opinion, all along the NHL knew it is better for hockey. It is better for the league broadly if they send their players. It's also that they crushed the spirit of the IOC by showing that without NHL players there, absolutely nobody cares about the Olympic hockey tournament. I mean, outside of Russia, maybe. Uh, it was a complete non-factor in the last Olympiad, so I think they know that to have any kind of juice globally in that tournament, they need the players in the in the tournament. So uh, the gambit worked if they were looking for it, which is to put the pressure on the IOC, and, and hopefully the NHL gets the things they're looking for from them so the players can go back. Uh, looking at other sort of surprises in the CBA from what we know, um, not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, the The idea, I guess, that there could be a seventh year of it if the revenues are, if there, if there's still a lot of escrow owed to the owners, I think is an interesting little twist. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an agreement where there was maybe a bit more camaraderie in, in the decision-making than, than we expected. The winds have always been sort of blowing towards this, not being an apocalyptic labor dispute between the players and owners, mainly because the owners didn't have one issue where they would be like, we got to shut it down if we don't get this. Um, mm-hmm. when that's not the case, then you're going to expect a bit more smooth sailing. But how much do you think that the COVID-19 pause and the financial situation of the league maybe expedited the process, maybe created a, an air of, of cooperation that, that may have not necessarily been there in the same way had it not happened? Significantly. And like you said, the groundwork was there. The sides have been collaborative ever since they decided not to opt out um, and use that clause this fall. They've been meeting a couple times in Toronto um, this the season um, to work on a few things. But once they realized that if we keep the current structure, the salary cap could be $60 million or something atrocious like that, that's not good for players. And it's also not good for teams who would then be faced with really difficult decisions. So I am confident that this is what you said in our call. This was the Super Mario I'm not good with these analogies. I need you, mean you to the, take you mean, me home You mean here. The, Mar- the Mario Kart power-up towards a, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> a deal? Yes, 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 yes. I, I was that girl who just showed up in someone's basement. I was like, ooh, Mario Kart's playing. I'll play Toad. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you bringing that analogy home for me. All right, some reader mail real quick. Chris wants to know, did the players lose some leverage having to negotiate a CBA with the current financial uncertainty of the next few years? You know, Tough call because there are aspects of what happened that definitely strengthened their case because, you know, they were essential for returning to play. And there's no question that the salary cap, which the owners fought tooth and nail to earn, was linked to revenue. And if the players didn't agree to artificially inflate it, it would have dropped like a stone. So in some ways, the current financial uncertainty and the current situation with the season 
I think, put some wind in their sails. But at the same time, I mean, they're also taking a 20% escrow hit next season because of this stuff. Yeah. Um, guess who's whack <laughs> wants to know the opt-out option in the player's agreement uh, is in the player's agreement, but do you think anyone will actually use it? Does the hockey culture factor basically reduce this to a non-option? So I've been trying to take a pulse here and a vibe check on, on how many people I do think will opt out. We've heard rumors that there could be a handful, but from everything I hear, it will not be a significant number. It won't be like what we're seeing in baseball or even the NBA. I do think part of it is hockey culture. Um, guys don't want to you know, separate themselves from a team environment. They don't want to make themselves a story. And part of it is that these guys just want to be there. And, and I don't think there's anything that's really jarring to them that makes them believe this is somewhere that's unsafe or unfit for them to play. I'll be fascinated to see how many of those players are UFAs, by the way. That's, that's, that's the mm. thing I want to find out. All right, let's get to our next guest. All right, joining us on the line, Rick Westhead from TSN covers uh, many uh, sensitive topics in the uh, world of, of hockey and uh, tends to piss off a lot of people when he does so, which is always God's work. Uh, Rick, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Let's start off with one of the biggest stories that has broken in the last couple months, which is the ongoing uh, class action suit that's being brought against uh, some organizations in Canadian junior hockey. Could you just catch up our listeners on, on, that, on that story and, and your reporting on it? Absolutely. Absolutely. For people who aren't you know, fully aware, the Canadian Hockey League is a 60-team league that stretches across Canada and has a few teams in the United States as well. And it's the, the jumping point for, for high-level prospects to the National Hockey League. Uh, it has players ages 16 to 21 usually. Uh, and, and this lawsuit was filed a couple weeks ago by a former NHL player named Dan Carcillo and another former player named Garrett Taylor. And the two are alleging that the CHL either knew or should have known that hazing was run, running rampant through its league uh, and that team management should have been doing more to try to stop it. This isn't a class action lawsuit yet. The way this works is, that, you know, you go to court, you file a motion requesting that it become a class action suit, and it won't be months, uh, you know, probably maybe even a year or so before we find out whether the the courts are going to approve that request or not. And that's going to be a huge decision because if it is a class action, that means that many, many former CHL players would automatically become plaintiffs in this case without even having to write in and sign up. So, Rick, I understand the CHL has not responded in court yet, but they have said they're going to look into this and investigate it. You've covered junior yeah. hockey. You've covered this league. How much faith do you have that they're actually going to do a thorough and proper investigation? I, I think one of the things we learn in professional and amateur sports alike is talk is cheap. And, you know, you can have a thousand policies and talk about zero tolerance. But to me, what really makes a difference is what do you actually do when you're presented with something like this? Uh, it's been more than a year since Dan Carcillo first raised allegations uh, that he, you know, again, he talked about hazing and junior hockey long before he filed his lawsuit. What has the CHL done since he first raised these allegations? His coach with the Sarnia Sting in the OHL went on to coach with another OHL team, went on to coach with an American Hockey League team, and then has coached with several junior teams in Ontario. Uh, and again, Dan Carcillo is alleging that that former coach uh, was fully aware of what was going on. Well, what has the CHL done in the last year? Has it interviewed all the different players who are on that 
that Sarnia Sting team that Carcillo was with when he alleged that the hazing and abuse was so rampant. Um, and if they haven't interviewed everyone, why not? What's holding them back? Is this a resource question? Uh, is it because, you know, the news cycle changes so fast that they don't feel the pressure to do anything? Uh, I think these are the sorts of things we really need some answers to. This story got a lot of play. Um, I don't know if it got enough play. And I wonder if some of that is a Dan Carcillo problem. Now, I, I think what Dan's done since his retirement and changing his life and, and trying to bring light to issues like con concussions and, and hazing and things of that nature are very important. But I was talking to a former NHL executive yesterday, in fact, and he said, look, you know, when Dan was playing, he was one of these guys who would say horrible things and sometimes do horrible things. And so as a reporter and in interacting with Dan and having covered Dan on a number of, of these issues, do you think that there is something about him being the leading voice on something like this that makes people hesitant to jump on the story? Well, that, that's a good that's a good point. And I think it is a factor that Dan has acknowledged uh, the things that he's done in his life that he regrets. Um, but let me ask, let me answer your question with a question. Why do we hold Dan Carcillo to this level? Um, and not everyone. Craig McTavish, Craig McTavish, you know, killed someone when he was drunk driving and did a year in jail. And he got another chance in the world of professional hockey. Grant Fuhrer, you know, was suspended from the NHL for using cocaine. The list of people who cross lines is long in professional hockey. So, Greg, you answer me. Why doesn't Dan Carcillo get a chance to rehabilitate himself when others do? Is it because he's asking hard questions? Yes. I will answer your question to my question, which was an answer to my question by saying that you are correct. <laughs> that the other, the other examples that you gave were the classic – old boys network let's give the old boy a chance which i'm sure is why we'll see bill peters coaching in this league again at some point um and what dan is doing is essentially trying to break the system and break these cycles and and challenge people that don't want to be challenged and in the case of canadian junior hockey i mean you're talking about a massive institution and a lot of places that have their hand in, in these cookie jars and a lot of alumni and alumnus from this these organizations that maybe don't necessarily want to see friends of theirs raked over the coals because of their behavior, you know, decades ago. And uh, and I think you're completely right, which is that, you know, the second chances for a guy like Dan don't come as quickly because he's not simply just looking to become an assistant coach someplace. Uh, I, I've spent the last couple of days trying to get answers out of the Ontario Hockey Association. The OHA is a provincial level group here, which is in charge of junior hockey. Dan's former coach with, the Sarnia Sting, his name's Jeff Perry. And Jeff, for the last couple of years, has been coaching in junior C hockey in Ontario. So I'm trying to get answers out of the Ontario Hockey Association about whether that's appropriate. What do they do from a procedural perspective when allegations are raised against a coach? And again, this isn't just hockey. We should be asking these questions uh, when abuse allegations are raised in any sports. Uh, you know, what, what, so what has the OHA done? Uh, is it appropriate that this coach is is involved with junior C hockey players, again, teenagers and minors? And if it is, then explain why. Be transparent. Have they investigated this? Who have they talked to? And it may well be that they've decided that 
you know, Mr. Perry has cleared every bar that they might have for him to coach. But the problem I think that we have is that many organizations, to your point, Greg, they, they're resistant to change. They don't like being asked hard questions. They'd rather talk about plus minus and, you know, point streaks and game winning streaks and things like this. Let's stick to the sports. But I think we can all agree here. Those days are done. And, uh, and I'm glad for one that they are. Rick, I know this is right now just a proposed class action lawsuit, and I believe the next step is certification, but we're not too familiar with the Canadian justice system. Can you just outline what are the next steps and what is the potential outcome here? Is this something that could possibly linger for years? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there was a, another lawsuit against the CHL over minimum wage, over whether players are employees mm-hmm. of the CHL. That lawsuit dragged on for six years before the league settled it with the lead plaintiffs. And it led to a $30 million payout. Uh, Again, that was a six-year journey through the court system across Canada. The CHL is facing another proposed class action case over concussions. And that one's, you know, a little bit further ahead than this latest hazing case is. This hazing case is still so new that we're not even sure which law firm uh, the CHL is going to be hiring to, to you know, make its case in the courts. So next up, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. The class certification is a big, uh, you know, it's going to be a big decision. There's going to be a lot that hinges on that because, again, if it's not a class action, that means that any player that wants to make a case that they were the victim of hazing and that their teams and leagues should have done better by them, they would have to file those cases individually instead of as a class. Um, It's one of the reasons why in the NHL, the concussion lawsuit fell apart because the players lost that argument uh, that they should be a common class. Right. right. I wanted to move over to return to play, uh, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, Emily and I, because you you had a tweet, um, which is, by the way, a phrase that I absolutely hate. It makes me cringe when I listen to a podcast and it's like, I had a tweet or I read a tweet. Ugh. Um, but anyway, you wrote that uh, the about the the COVID-19 positive test disclosures when we're inside the bubble and we return to play. And I thought you brought up a very interesting point that I've been thinking about as well, which is that if the information that a player tested positive is only known to teammates, staff and other insiders, it could potentially compromise the integrity of betting lines, which is a really interesting point. I mean, the NHL clearly, uh, you know, plays, uh, you know, plays its game with upper body, lower body. They don't really specify. This is something different. And this is something where, uh, you know, an infection could potentially impact the rest of a team, uh, could potentially potentially put a player out for more than two weeks. Um, What are your thoughts on on the COVID-19 positive test disclosure and the delicate dance that we have between medical privacy and the fact that this is a competition and, 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 you know, maybe there needs to be more disclosure on these things. Well, there's, there's a, there's a bunch of questions in there, Greg. I think they're all good ones. You know, first of all, I, I, I think it's a really important public discussion to talk about whether these athletes have COVID or not. And, you know, it's interesting. I can remember a couple months ago learning that some players in the NHL had tested positive for COVID-19 and made the decision not to report their names. And the reason I just I thought that their their, their right to, to, to privacy over their medical information was a really important consideration. But but I think that things have changed, and I think it is important that the league 
identify players for a couple of reasons. You know, the first you mentioned, when they go back to play, uh, it, it has the impact to, to affect the integrity of games at the same time as the NHL is trying to do more and more partnerships and deals with gambling companies. But another reason is the NHL is asking, you know, the governments, the government of Canada, to waive uh, a, for a, a rule whereby any traveler that arrives in Canada is required to quarantine for 14 days. And the NHL doesn't want to do that. Well, if you're asking the federal government and, you know, if you followed what's happening in Canada, it, the response to COVID-19 I think the story here, most people would say, is dramatically different than in the United States. Ontario is our biggest province by far. There's almost 15 million people in Ontario. And today we had just over 100 new cases of COVID-19, and that's been pretty consistent in recent days. When you compare that to what's happening in Florida and Texas and Arizona, you know, I think it's a valid public health discussion about whether the NHL should be given this exception that no one else is being given right now for people coming in not to have to quarantine. Rick, I just want to leave you on this. I respect your opinion on so many things, and I would just love to know a bird's eye view. What is your thoughts on the ethics of even staging this tournament? You know, Sean Doolittle uh, with the Washington Nationals had this quote that stuck with me. Sports are the reward of a functioning society, especially here in the U.S. I'm not sure we're a functioning society. You know, then they go up to Canada where, you know, maybe they've handled a little better. What do you think of even playing right now before there's a vaccine? Yeah, I get, that's a good question. I talked with an infectious disease expert yesterday. And again, it, my opinion on this, I really try to inform myself with what medical doctors and infectious disease experts say. I'm no specialist on any of this. But in terms of the, I, I see the, 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 the rationale for doing it, and I see the value in doing it. Um, Suman Chakrabarty is an infectious disease doctor in Toronto, and I talked to him the other day. And he spoke about how people's mental health is being affected right now, mm-hmm. about how, you know, in his practice, uh, he had someone come into hospital six days after suffering a heart attack. And the reason they waited so long is because they were afraid about getting COVID from coming in the hospital. So the value in having a tournament like this or in any sport, whether it's the NBA or major league soccer or the NFL, there's a value there. It's giving people a distraction and something to to make them happy. But at the same time, I think it's really important that we talk about whether we've we're informed or not and whether the players are aware of the risks an NHL player is among the healthiest individuals in our society. I think we all agree on that. In their 20s, you know, top shape, fantastic. What happens if they get COVID? The stats say that those players are unlikely to die from COVID. But what if they lose 10 or 15% of their breathing capacity? Mm-hmm. Are they still an NHL player after that? What, what does it do to them long term? You know, this is a disease we're still learning about that we first thought was a respiratory illness and we're now learning is more like a vascular disease. Mm-hmm. What does it do to their, what could it do to their organs 10 or 15 years ago? And, you know, unfortunately, I think we don't have a lot of those answers. So as long as the NHL is being honest with players and honest with the public, you know, explaining to people in Toronto and Edmonton what the risk locally might be, then, uh, you know, I, I, I think as long as they're transparent, then we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Also, maybe have coaches wear a mask 
I mean, that's one of the things in this document I just don't understand. All these guys are – there's 11 guys 55 years and older that are, that are head coaches in the NHL coaching in this tournament, and uh, we're not having them wear masks behind the bench, uh, not only for their own benefit, but as uh, uh, saliva sprinklers as they scream and yell behind the bench. Like, it makes no sense not to have those guys not well, wear masks. But. One of the things I didn't see, Greg, I mean, maybe you guys saw this, but what if players on a team test positive? Is it Does that team move forward if one or five or 10 or 15 players test positive at once? I, I didn't see any number there. So is that a judgment call on well, behalf of the league a, or the team? There's a part of the document that talks about the doomsday scenarios for the tournament. And, and one of them is whether continuation of play would, would impact the integrity of, of the competition. So reading between the lines there, it sounds like, okay, if all of a sudden the Montreal Canadiens become the Laval Rockets because of how many guys test positive for COVID, then maybe we need to reassess this. But there's not anything specific as far as like, what if a team does this? What if a team does that? But to your point though, there is a lot in there about contract uh, contact tracing and uh, well, you know, what are the chances that two teammates spend more than 15 minutes talking to each other within six feet of each other? So I wonder how that's going to affect also, things. I'd also like a little more transparency. I mean, we know that the NHL liked the idea of playing in Vancouver. What was it that the British Columbia, you know, chief medical officer decided that was so unpalatable to the NHL? And shouldn't the standards that BC wanted be the same ones that are being used in Alberta and Ontario? Again, these are I've, I've heard some suggestions that it was about how many players might have to be quarantined if there was a positive test. But I haven't heard anything absolutely def- definite. And I think that's, again, where this league and the provinces and municipalities have an obligation to be fully transparent with us. What did B.C. want that the NHL couldn't stomach? And right. was Ontario and Alberta willing to bend the rules or to accept something different? Great questions. Rick? Thank you so much for your time, man. We appreciate the insight, and uh, keep doing what you do, man. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Moving on, let's get to our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel's Hot Dogs. It's the segment each week where we take the hockey media to task for its hyperbole or its mistakes or what have you. Or, or sometimes just a disagreement on approach, which is my point about the athletic. The athletic, we have all of our friends are there. We love them. We're so happy for them, and uh, and uh, they do great work. But they also did a thing about ranking the arenas based on how the reporters who sit in the press box think about them. First of all, you know, it's like it's like when someone tries to review a children's movie. It's not for you. It's for the kids. The arenas aren't for you. They're not for me. They're not for Emily. They're not for any writers. They're for the people who bought a ticket and walk through the front door and use the concession stands and sit in the stands and watch the game. So the entire idea that we're going to judge an arena based on our experiences in it is bubkus. That said, the Devil's Arena is 28th. The Rock, the Prudential Center, granted, not the greatest neighborhood. If you, although if you walk a few blocks to Hobbies, you're okay. But the arena itself is a jewel. It's an oasis. Everything you need is there. It's a beautiful place to watch a game. It's got all this stuff. But, like, you're judging it by the press box because the chairs are too close together and they wheel around and you're uncomfortable. Nonsense. So, I didn't like the ranking. That's my point. All right, puck headlines. Dateline Chicago. 
Blackhawks have commented on the backlash against their using a Native American name and logo to say that the name and logo symbolizes an important and historic person, Blackhawk of the Illinois Sac and Fox Nation. Uh, we will continue to serve as stewards of our name and identity and will do so with a commitment to evolve. Our endeavors in this area have been sincere and multifaceted and the path forward will draw on that experience to grow as an organization and expand our efforts. Emily, no public pressure really from a corporate standpoint on the Blackhawks in the same way that the Washington football team is facing from like Target not selling their stuff anymore. What do you think about the Blackhawks response to this, uh, this, their part of this controversy? Yeah, you know, I was interested in it. And I think you're spot on in mentioning the corporate um, pressure because, let's face it, that's the only thing that gets people to change their minds is when it affects their wallet. Um, it doesn't seem like the Blackhawks' biggest sponsors are asking them to do it. And quite frankly, it doesn't feel like there's a groundswell from fans or the general public either. Um, so, yeah, I do think it was right for them to release a statement and explain their thought process. And, and you know, I'm glad that they want to continue the dialogue and honoring Native Americans. But uh, this is just something I don't see changing anytime soon. Famous last words. <laughs> uh, Dateline goalies. So uh, on ESPN.com, it's a cool story where we looked at the goalie controversies or just, you know, traffic jams maybe for uh, many of the postseason teams. Was there one situation you have your eye on that you think is sort of fascinating? Dude, so many goalie controversies this year. It's wild. I think Nashville is the most interesting to me because you've got the guy in Picarene, um, and he's only two years removed from his Vezina season. But Yusei Saros has, has really been the guy this year. And then you've got John Hines coming in only two months on the job and has to figure out what to do here. And obviously Pekka, you know, has more playoff experience, also has some playoff meltdowns. So that's one I'm really looking forward to watching unfold. I'd also like to see what's going on with the Rangers, where they start, mm. where they end up with. I mean, as, as I mentioned in the piece, like if you're trying to find a way to pressure a guy to get out of his no move clause in his last year, you know, I don't think starting him in game one is necessarily the thing to do. I think keeping him third man on the bench is the thing to do. But we'll see what they end up doing with Henrik Lundqvist, obviously. Uh, finally, Dateline Emily Kaplan. You apparently have become an English Premier League fan during quarantine, or did it start before quarantine? Um, it started in. Uh, it's. It, I remember having the conversation with a friend at a bar uh, September, saying, "This is the year I'm going to do it." I've said this every year. <laughs> um, we went through the list of teams that would be a good candidate for me to follow. We li decided upon Chelsea because. Um, they have a young American star in Christian Pulisic, which, by the way, love watching the games because I love watching the English announcers always talk about Hershey, Pennsylvania, as if it's some posh place that he's from. <laughs> and we also decided that, you know, they're on national television a lot because they are so popular. Um, it would be easy to follow them. So I've loved watching them and I'm mad at myself and kicking myself for procrastinating this long. Greg, do you watch any EPL? It's great. I, I, I don't. I, my, my soccer fandom is is more national team based. Um, but that said, you know, obviously the the appeal of rolling out of bed, uh, grabbing a beer, making some eggs and watching uh, a, mm -hmm. a soccer match is pretty, pretty darn appealing. And, I, and it's one of my favorite things, actually, like when the World Cup would be going on and you can go to a bar at like eight in the morning and just like chill and watch a game. Pretty, pretty darn cool. So I understand right. that. I speak that language fluently. Welcome to the blues, Greg. Come be a supporter. <laughs> we'll see you on the pitch with a pint. Right. 
Indeed. All right. That's ESPN on Ice this week. Thanks to Bill, Billy, William, Willie Guerin of the Minnesota Wild. And thank you. Not Willie. And thank you to Rick Westhead of TSN for educating us on many topics. That's all she wrote. We'll talk to you next week. We'll have, uh, obviously, a situation where we'll know what's going on with the CBA and everything else. Uh, Take care, everybody. You can read our stuff on ESPN. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.